If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From the Oedipus complex to the Freudian slip, the theories of Sigmund Freud are still familiar to us today. But how much do we know about the man himself? Author and retired doctor Seamus O'Mahony has written a new book, The Guru, The Bagman and The Skeptic, which tells the story of the founder of psychoanalysis and reveals how his life and career were tied into that of two other lesser known but equally intriguing doctors. Rachel Dinning spoke to him to find out more. Today we are going to talk about your book, The Guru, The Bagman and The Skeptic, which tells the story of three doctors in the first half of the 20th century. So they are Ernest Jones, Wilfred Trotter and Sigmund Freud. Um, So to start off this podcast, I thought you could perhaps tell our listeners what links these three men together and why did you want to tell their stories in tandem? So the link person really uh, is Ernest Jones. So Sigmund Freud, pretty much the entire world has heard of. And, you know, he has an image which is instantly recognisable, even if you know nothing about psychoanalysis or psychiatry. His closest disciple during the early years of psychoanalysis, and in fact right up to his death, was a Welsh doctor called Ernest Jones, who first met Freud in 1908, which is a sort of pivotal year in this book. 1908 was was when the first ever International Psychoanalytic Congress was held in Salzburg. And Jones, after that Congress, was so impressed by Freudian ideas and by Freud as a person that he threw in his lot and his professional 
focus for the rest of his life into psychoanalysis. And he became Freud's closest disciple. He was one of this group of six, what he called paladins, which was this inner committee of devoted disciples who were there to look after Freud personally, to promote his ideas, to protect him. Jones also ran the, founded and ran the British Psychoanalytical Society. So he was the key person in terms of promoting psychoanalysis within the English-speaking world. He was also incredibly important to Freud personally because it was Jones, almost single-handedly, who extracted Freud from Vienna after the Nazi annexation of the country in 1938. So Ernest Jones is this key figure. The third person is Wilfred Trotter. Wilfred Trotter was Jones's closest friend when they were young men. They met when they were both working as junior doctors in University College Hospital in London and in the early years of the 20th century. Trotter was a, an older man by about eight years and, you know, was a registrar or senior registrar when Jones was a houseman. But they formed this intense friendship based on shared intellectual interests in psychology, sociology, philosophy, medicine, obviously. And the two of them travelled together in 1908 to Salzburg for this congress. And it was a pivotal moment for them both. For Jones, it it was his Damascene moment when he decided, yes, I'm going to devote my life to psychoanalysis and to this man, Freud. Trotter went along and was totally unimpressed, thought this was largely nonsense and that the people involved were either crazy or you know, uh, crooks are on the make or whatever. And it eventually led to a sundering of the very close friendship between Jones and Trotter. So while Jones went off to become Freud's bagman, his closest disciple, Trotter became probably the most able, the greatest English surgeon of the years between the wars. He was also famous for writing a book in the middle of the First World War on social psychology called Instincts of the Herd in Peace and War, which was a huge bestseller at the time. He was also famous some years later for saving the life of George V, who had lingered for many months with an unresolved lung abscess, which was, you know, suboptimally managed. Now, I thought that this triangular relationship provided the ideal structure for me to write about psychoanalysis uh, uh, because Trotter represents, I guess, empirical science. He was sceptical and dubious about psychoanalysis from the very first contact with it, really. He nevertheless admired Freud as a great man, which is interesting, but could not bring himself to accept the core uh, tenets of psychoanalysis, um, its theories. So in this book, Trotter represents scientific scepticism and the empirical uh, tradition. I'd wanted to write about psychoanalysis for a long time, 
why did it become so all-powerful? Why was it so influential? I would have to say that I would share Trotter's view on psychoanalysis, and I would also share his view that Freud, despite being wrong, if I can use that word, still remains a great man because he changed how we view the world. So I came across Trotter, who's pretty much forgotten all the people that he trained or worked with are dead. His students are dead. Nobody remembers him. And when I found out the connection with Jones, I thought this is really interesting. And this triangular friendship was the ideal framework or structure for me to write about this period of about 30 years in the history of psychoanalysis. So that's the background uh, to it. You've set up quite nicely the explanation for the title of your book, The Guru, The Bagman and The Skeptic, which the three men obviously fit neatly into. Um, I was wondering if you could give our listeners a bit of background on psychoanalysis. So can you tell us what what it is, basically, some of the beliefs that Freud had about it and the theories? Okay, I suppose it, it would be best to start off with just a little bit about Freud himself and how he came into this field almost by accident in a way because Freud graduated as as a medical doctor and his initial work was in neuroanatomy and neurohistology, neurophysiology, laboratory work in the University of Vienna. And he would quite happily have stayed as an academic neuroscientist had it not been for the fact that he was Jewish. And at that time, Jewish doctors found it incredibly difficult in Vienna to get promotion, particularly in academic posts. And Freud was advised that, you know, you're able, you're clever, but, you know, you're not going to progress because of your race. So Freud decided that he he wanted to get married to his fiancée, Martha, and in order to do this, he would have to leave academe and work as a clinical doctor, and not only that, work seeing patients privately in his apartment. So he moved from neuroanatomy and neurophysiology to clinical neurology. He spent some time with the great French neurologist uh, Jean-Martin Charcot in Paris, spent several months as a as a attending as a sort of a, a visiting fellow in Charcot's department in the Salpetriere hospital in Paris and he was deeply impressed by Charcot who argued that what was then called hysteria had essentially psychological origins so when freud you know set up in private neurology in vienna in the 1880s and 1890s, his clientele were fee-paying, bourgeois, relatively well-off Viennese people, predominantly young women who came to him with what we would now call conversion disorder. Private neurology in those days was essentially predominantly psychosomatic conditions like conversion disorder, then called hysteria, no longer called of that called that because of its misogynistic connotations. And Freud gradually built this edifice based on his interactions with these patients. Now, while all of this was going on, he underwent a sort of prolonged 
spiritual crisis, if I can use that term. And he, during this kind of prolonged spiritual crisis, he, rather like other gurus, he looked into his own soul, if I can use that word, for answers to these pressing problems on the human psyche. So he looked into his own experience of childhood, for example, and from this came up with the idea of the Oedipus complex, namely that small boys are sexually attracted to their mothers and and hostile towards their fathers. He took from his own experience his ideas about dreams that they represented repressed desires and that they could be symbolically decoded, and so on and so on. His other great idea was transference, so that the dialogue between the doctor, in this case the analyst, the psychoanalyst, and the patient recreated all the relationships that the patient had previously with authority figures and parents, and that the patient was therefore transferring onto the doctor their ideas about their previous relationships with authority figures, particularly parents. He came to believe that all neuroses had a sexual origin. He came up with particular techniques such as free association. So he gradually built up this edifice of psychoanalysis, which was based around prolonged treatment. So it was three days a week. The patient famously laid on the couch in his apartment in Berggasse in Vienna. And this went on frequently for years. So Freudian psychoanalysis was a prolonged treatment using techniques of dream analysis, using free association, and recounting dreams. The analyst used the Freudian techniques of dream interpretation, the analysis of the transference, and so on. And this gradually took root in Vienna, and Freud initially attracted a group of fellow Jewish doctors and who met in his apartment famously every Wednesday evening to discuss cases. The other doctors were all a good deal younger than Freud, so he became this patriarchal figure, a guru, as I say, and he elaborated over what eventually became this enormous corpus of work, now 24 volumes, the collected work of Freud. He elaborated his ideas over this huge written output, which he was doing right up until his death in 1939. So Freud was a great pro-stylist, and he had great charisma as a person, an incredibly persuasive man, and he had this great integrity also, which attracted followers and, and disciples. And his ideas took root in the German-speaking world, but gradually uh, became popular in the English-speaking world, largely down to Jones, who was one of the earliest psychoanalysts to set up practice in, in London and founded the British Psychoanalytical Society. So particularly after the Second World War, when most of the German-speaking Jewish psychoanalysts had to flee Europe, psychoanalysis took root very much in North America, where it became the dominant force in academic psychiatry in North America right into the, certainly into the 70s. So psychoanalysis has waned in its influence within mainstream psychiatry. 
There's no doubt about that. But it remains very influential in the academy and very influential in, still as a therapy, particularly in the great cosmopolitan cities, you know, London, New York, Paris, psychoanalysis still thrives. It's very interesting that you refer to Freud as a guru um, and you mentioned that he ha- him having this sort of spiritual awakening in his young years and also that his background was medical. So it's kind of interesting that he went from being like a man of science to psychoanalysis is not necessarily based in in scientific fact or scientific method. Um, Do you believe that psychoanalysis is best understood as a sort of cult? That seems to be the implication in your book that its rising popularity was cult-like with the following, with Freud at the pinnacle. Yes, it, it, it was essentially cult-like. I mean, the big mistake Freud made was that he claimed to the day of his death that it was a science, which is bizarre because he was not without scientific training. He had worked with the great neurophysiologist Brucker. He knew about science. He had published scientific papers. He understood the scientific process. He understood data collection, all of that kind of thing. And I think if he had instead framed it in, in different terms, it might have been better for psychoanalysis. But the very fact that he kept using the word science in relation to psychoanalysis, I feel, discredited both him and the entire project. Freud is interesting as a person because although he had this scientific training and he had worked in biomedical academic science, he was at heart a literary man. His passions as a boy were ancient history, language, literature. He idolised Shakespeare, English culture, Cervantes. He was obsessed with classical antiquity. He was essentially a literary figure. He was a brilliant essayist. And I regard him essentially as as a literary figure. But for some reason, best known only to him, he persisted with this mistaken notion of psychoanalysis as as a science. And he wasn't the only one. All of his followers, including Jones, kept using the word science when it was anything but. There was no empirical basis. They didn't use scientific method at all. They, uh, and most of the people who followed Freud, particularly the lay analysts who had no medical background, had no, had, had no understanding whatsoever about scientific method or scientific inquiry. Jones had a medical background, but he too kept using the word science, which was completely unfounded, but did admit that that the quality of scepticism was not well developed in his case. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. On the note of Jones then, so he's obviously the second man at the heart of your book, um, what role did he play in the rise of psychoanalysis and how, how should we see his relationship with Freud? Jones decided very early on that his role would be that of disciple. So he was a mixture of, I don't know, St. Paul, Boswell. So he was 
chief proselytizer, biographer, keeper of, of orthodoxy, protector of uh, Freud, rescuer of Freud. He even wanted to become his son-in-law at one stage and had notions of marrying Anna Freud before it became abundantly clear to Jones that Anna wasn't interested in him or indeed men. So Jones established psychoanalysis really in Britain by co-founding the British Psychoanalytical Society. He also was very important in controlling the supply of psychoanalytic patients in London for many years. He founded and ran journals. He fed information back to Freud through a correspondence that lasted for over 30 years. They were incredible letter writers in those days. So his correspondence with Freud is voluminous and quite entertaining in, in, in parts. So he was on the lookout constantly for any heresy amongst the psychoanalytic faithful, and he kept the other psychoanalysts in Britain in particular in line. So he did all the work that Freud didn't want to do or couldn't do, particularly the dirty work, the political dirty work. So he was kind of like a chief whip in a way and was absolutely devoted to Freud as a person. And indeed, you know, it could be said that it was Jones really who saved Freud's life. It was he who begged the Home Secretary to give exit visas, or entry visas, should I say, to Freud and his family, and indeed an extended entourage to arrive to, 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 to live in London. So Jones did all of that. And Freud didn't care for Jones personally, but knew how important he was both to him and his family and to the psychoanalytic movement at large. The third man at the heart of your book, Wilfred Trotter, who you called the sceptic. Um, he was a surgeon and scientist and he was considerably less well known than Freud. Um, what were his greatest accomplishments? Perhaps you could tell us about some of the work that he did and how he sort of stands up in comparison to the, the other two men in the book. Trotter became, I think by common consent, the greatest English surgeon of the interwar years. I'm talking 1918 to 1939. And he was a very unusual man because surgeons in those days, almost exclusively male, incredibly arrogant, whereas Trotter did not conform in any way to this stereotype. He was humble. He was self-effacing. He was incredibly courteous to his patients, regardless of their background. He was incredibly courteous to his colleagues and his students. And he was loved in University College Hospital, I think more than any doctor who ever worked there in its entire history. And he had this intense charisma. So on top of all of that, then, he became a fellow of the Royal Society, which for a full-time clinical surgeon is a highly unusual honour. And he achieved this for carrying out uh, an experiment on nerve regeneration after nerve damage. He had read this paper, which is now a famous paper, by the neurologist Henry Head and the psychiatrist and anthropologist W.H.R. Rivers. And they had published a paper on nerve regeneration Sir Henry Head had several nerves in his arm cut and spent two years going up and down to rivers in Cambridge and they mapped the recovery of nerve 
sensation over those two years. And in fact, that experiment inspired Pat Barker's novel, Regeneration, which was about Rivers' subsequent work as a psychiatrist treating shell-shocked soldiers in Craig Lockhart, most notably Siegfried Sassoon. So she used the metaphor of nerve regeneration as the title for her novel. Anyway, Trotter read that paper and said, hmm, bit too glib, bit too neat in their conclusions. And he went off and did a far more extensive experiment with another surgeon called Morriston Davies, where he had nerves cut all over his body and also deliberately cut. Now, can you imagine doing that when you're a full-time surgeon and your hands are your livelihood? He went off and had nerves in his arm cut and he had, as did Morriston Davis, and they slowly mapped the recovery of nerve sensation and function. And they wrote a far more extensive paper, which essentially debunked and completely trashed what Head and Rivers had got up to. And this paper was regarded at the time, it was published in 1908-09, and it is regarded as this kind of milestone in neurophysiology. And not only that, but it was a model of experimental method. So much so that the Royal Society made Trotter a fellow, a highly unusual honour. So there was all of that. And then he wrote Instincts of the Herd in Peace and War. And, you know, the herd instinct is now everywhere as a phrase. Boris Johnson used it in his resignation speech on the plinth outside number 10 last year. He talked about, you know, the herd and uh, the herd instinct and all of that. Anyway, Trotter had written two papers back in 1908-09 on social psychology. And his thesis essentially was that man must be understood as a social animal and that the most powerful influence on our behaviour is not our subconscious, as Freud would have it, but our relationship with our fellows, the herd. And that gregariousness was the most important aspect of this. So he wrote a book-length thesis. He expanded these papers into a book. He was asked by a government, a propaganda official, to do this. This government official thought that it would be it would be useful propaganda during the war. So the idea being that the German herd was different to the British herd and that because the German herd was essentially wolf-like or lupine, that defeat was inevitable compared to the British herd, which was, you know, benign and bee-like and cooperative and all of this kind of stuff. And so there was quite a bit of patriotic jingoism in his book, but it became this huge bestseller during the Great War. But at the core of it is a very interesting thesis on social psychology and human behaviour, which in fact influenced Freud later on himself. But Trotter after this didn't write any more books on social psychology. He didn't do any more experiments on nerve function or whatever. He went back and became essentially, you know, a full-time clinical surgeon and teacher at UCH. His great moment in the sun was saving George V. So in 1929, George V got pneumonia complicated by a lung abscess, an empyema. And 
this huge committee of eminent doctors were called in. They were all organised by his personal physician, Lord Dawson of Penn. And they kind of carried out an incomplete drainage of this empyema. And there is this absolutely absurd comic moment where uh, six months later, in the summer of 1929, uh, sorry, George V is going to a service of thanksgiving at Westminster Abbey to celebrate his recovery. And on the way back from this ceremony, he says to Dawson, fancy having a, a service of thanksgiving when I've still got pus coming out of my side. Anyway, about two weeks after all of this, um, Dawson called in Wilfred Trotter and Trotter carried out an operation, cured the king. All of the other doctors were given baronetcies and knighthoods and Trotter was offered this, you know, a baronetcy, refused, famously travelled to Buckingham Palace by bus, went out the back door and said, thanks very much. So he was this incredibly um, self-effacing figure incredibly humble, uninterested in, you know, publicity, honours. The only honour he ever accepted was the Fellowship of the Royal Society because that was given in recognition by your peers. So he saved the life of the king, but everybody gave the credit to Dawson. But it was Trotter who actually saved his, his life. So he is almost the polar opposite to Freud. He represents the empirical tradition. He represents scientific method. He shared with Freud, I think, this intense charisma to the extent that people, in the same way as Freud, imitated his walk and his speech and, as Freud's disciples imitated, his mannerisms. But in every other way, Trotter was the polar opposite. So interesting because he's so much lesser known and obviously Freud is a household name. What makes someone like Freud a household name and so incredibly influential? Um, and then someone like Trotter, he's not lost a history because we are talking about him right now, but um, far less well known. Well, he is completely unknown. I wrote to UCH to see if there was any sort of Trotter related material there and, you know, essentially drew a blank. And it's an interesting reflection on the transience of fame, isn't it? That here was this figure worshipped in this hospital, the greatest figure in British surgery for two decades. And, and it's interesting because his family and friends put together some of his collected papers after he died. And one of the papers was called On the Commemoration of Great Men. And he predicted his own oblivion. He said, the minute you're dead, the process of forgetting begins. Freud, you see, is a great man because he's a genius, because he changed how we view the world. Even if it's largely nonsense, even if it's incorrect, in a way that doesn't matter. He had the force of personality and his brilliance as a writer and his persuasiveness, he had all of that, which somehow changed the world. Yeah, I was going to ask, I had a question actually about how did Freud and perhaps psychoanalysis become mainstream? Was it a sort of PR campaign? Was it because all of these wealthy people were very interested in it? There were several factors. So the first factor was Freud himself, which I've alluded to. The second factor was timing. So when Freud became famous which would have been after the First World War in 
the early 1920s. That's when he became famous. It was timing. The world was ready for him. After the Great War, there was this explosion in this kind of art. So 1922, we had The Wasteland. We had Ulysses. We had Stravinsky. So there was this explosion in a sort of an art of desolation in a way. And along comes psychoanalysis. So there was this feeling amongst artists and intellectuals after the Great War that religion had failed, politics had failed, philosophy had failed. And along comes this all-embracing theory which claimed to explain everything, not just human behaviour, but economics, history, everything. So it was all-embracing. It claimed to embrace everything. And it became fantastically attractive to intellectuals. So I have one chapter about all of these Cambridge intellectuals who went out to Vienna, whether they had neurosis or anything wrong with them or not, to be analysed because, well, partly because the Austrian currency was so weak they could live in splendour in huge apartments and be analysed for months on end and go to the opera in the evenings and dine out at these fabulous restaurants. So all these fantastically gifted People from Cambridge, you know, people like the great Frank Ramsey, like Lionel Penrose. All of these people went out during the 1920s, J.D. Bernal. And it appealed very much to Bloomsbury. So figures like James Strachey, Adrian Stevens, Virginia Woolf's brother. Virginia Woolf, by the way, was about the only great Bloomsbury figure who was not persuaded by psychoanalysis. So when psychoanalysis attracted fans. The fans, okay, were relatively few, but they were incredibly influential. So psychoanalysis was to Cambridge in the 1920s what communism was to Cambridge in the 1930s. It it had this huge influence over people like even Maynard Keynes and even to, you know, Wittgenstein was not persuaded, but certainly people like Keynes were great admirers of, of Freud. So Freud at was proved incredibly attractive to the English intellectual elite of the 1920s in particular. Yeah, that's a great quote that I actually wrote down from your book, which was psychoanalysis became a home for rich directionless strays who analysed other rich directionless strays, because quite a lot of them actually went and got analysed. And then once they'd done that, became analysts themselves and started actually practising it, didn't they? Yeah, so the two great examples of that are James Strachey and Adrian Stephen. So James Strachey, forever in the shadow of his older brother, Lytton Strachey. Lytton is brilliant, Lytton is fantastic. He's so wonderful. And there's poor James Strachey trying to live up to this incredibly gifted elder brother. And he tries everything. He drifts into journalism. He does it. He tried to open a theatre. He does a bit of this. He fails at everything and eventually decides... Oh, I'm going to go off and be analysed by Freud. And of course, it's Jones who brokers the deal. Jones is the one who sends him off to Freud. And after 18 months in Vienna with his wife, Alex, he's back in London, a member of the British Psychoanalytical Society. Now, Jones had told him, go off and qualify as a doctor first. He lasted two weeks at St. Thomas's Hospital Medical School. So Strachey himself recognised, I have landed myself as a psychoanalyst with no qualification whatsoever other than having undergone analysis myself. And the same with Adrian Stephen, Virginia Woolf's brother, again in the shadow of her brilliant older siblings. And he too, somehow, this rich, directionless, Bloomsbury, Cambridge graduate, they were all, you know, very similar. He too became 
an analyst. So it appealed, I think, incredibly to the narcissism of the upper middle class bourgeoisie. And there was this feeling amongst the Cambridge young men, because it was nearly all young men who did this, that psychoanalysis wasn't there really to get rid of neuroses or to treat mental illness. It was to kind of sharpen up my already brilliant intellect. You see, if I could go out and get rid of all of these minor repressions and things like that, I would strive forward into my fabulous future with my brilliant mind already tuned to perfection. So there was this that sort of idea about psychoanalysis. So it had this, uh, this sort of, it was almost a mania in the 1920s amongst the English intellectual and cultural elite. I mean, it sounds, when you put it like that, it sounds wonderful. Like, oh, I can go out and I can cure myself of my neuroses or I can sharpen my intellect. But do you think psychoanalysis could be a dangerous practice? There were certainly psychoanalytic experiments that had very unfortunate consequences. Uh, Psychoanalysis backfired in many cases. And I think the most egregious example was that of the Birmingham children. So to give you some background, Anna Freud's life partner was an American woman called Dorothy Tiffany Burlingham, daughter of Lewis Comfort Tiffany, the famous artist of the Tiffany family. And she came out to Vienna in the 1920s with her four children. She was estranged from her husband, Robert Burlingham, who was from an incredibly wealthy, grand New York wasp family. He was a surgeon, very wealthy family. He suffered from bipolar disorder and their marriage had failed. She had four children and the eldest boy was a bit troublesome. He had developed asthma and eczema, which Dorothy thought was psychosomatic. He had developed kind of delinquent behaviour and so on. So she arrived in Vienna. She'd heard about Anna Freud's work with children and decided that she would take her children, particularly the eldest two, Robert and Mabby, to be analysed by Anna. And she became so closely intertwined with Anna Freud that they became life partners. Now, whether they were lovers or not, nobody knows. They refused to identify as lesbian for their entire lives. But Anna analysed the two children for decades. She started with Bob, who was 10 years old at the time, and then Mabby, who was eight years old. And... Anna viewed analysis of children as not only a psychological therapy, but also a form of co-parenting, that it was this incredibly involved total therapy, which involved education, psychoanalysis, parenting. And this led to Bob and Mabby becoming, first of all, incredibly dependent on Anna. Their father then committed suicide as a result of both his bipolar disorder and because of his separation from his children. So when Bob and Mabby grew into adulthood, they had major problems. Bob became alcoholic, died at the age of 50, having led a very troubled existence, similarly with Mabby. And the fate of the Burlingham children was kept very secret. I only found out about it because Bob's son, This would be Dorothy's grandson, Michael, wrote a book 30 years ago, a biography of Dorothy, which told this very sad story. And I think one of the saddest things about it is that Bob Jr. 
inherited his father's bipolar disorder. And this bipolar disorder might have been stabilised if he'd been put on lithium, which was available when he became ill. And Anna Freud opposed this. So she opposed the very treatment that might have saved this man. And then what makes the story even worse is that going on to the 1970s, Anna Freud became incredibly influential in American courts in divorce custody battles with regards to parental custody. And she consistently argued that post-divorce contact between children and fathers, if the fathers were not granted custody, was not a good idea. And this was almost entirely based on her own bizarre interaction with the Burlingham family. So it's all very well to say, oh, you know, psychoanalysis was harmless. It was just, you know, the metropolitan sort of intellectual talking about themselves on a couch for hours on end. Yeah, that's true to a certain extent. But it, it also, it, it was also actively harmful in, in particularly in those cases, the Burlingham children. I'm curious about what the legacy of psychoanalysis today, does it inform um, medicine or psychology probably more specifically at all? Well, psychoanalysis has had a prolonged and messy divorce from psychiatry and medicine. So it no longer has any major influence on clinical practice in psychiatry. It's quite interesting that because during the 50s, 60s and 70s, it did. And the academic departments of psychiatry in, in North America, in the USA in particular, were nearly all occupied by Freudians. And when it became obvious into the 70s and 80s that it didn't work for anything probably more than minor neuroses, that it was incredibly time-consuming and expensive, that it was useless for the major psychiatric diseases, particularly psychosis, that it had no evidential base. It lost its perch within psychiatry and medicine, obviously. But psychoanalysis remained strong in the academy because, uh, particularly in France, it became intertwined with kind of structuralism and postmodernism and literary theory. So it's incredibly influential to this day within the academy. It's incredibly strong, not incredibly strong, but psychoanalysis as a clinical practice remains strong in London, Paris, New York, because it appeals to what the great American historian Christopher Lash called the hydra-headed narcissism of the affluent bourgeoisie. So it will always keep going, but it is now a much smaller endeavour than it was, let's say, in the mid-20th century. The heyday is over. It is still there. But Freud remains this huge, one of the great cultural figures of the 20th century. That was going to be my final question. How should we, in the 21st century, how should we view Freud today? How do you view Freud today? Through what lens? I would view him as a great cultural and historical figure who, through his persona and the brilliance of his writing, had an incredible influence on the world. I believe, however, that the core tenets of psychoanalytic theory and practice were misguided, that despite Freud's protestations, it had no empirical or scientific basis, but 
I have to kind of paraphrase what the Wolfman said. The Wolfman was one of his most famous patients. Wolfman was a, a Russian aristocrat called Sergei Pankiev, who was in an analysis with Freud and others for nearly all of his life. He died in his 90s. He was in analysis for 70 years. And he said, well, most of it, much of it isn't true, but you still have to say it's a great achievement, which is what I think. He changed how we view the world, even though it was wrong. He changed how the world saw things and saw human psychology. So Trotter, for me, is the quintessential scientific hero. Who remembers Trotter now? Nobody. Well, I hope maybe this book may maybe resurrect that reputation. But Trotter went into oblivion, his reputation, his work, whereas Freud will remain known regardless of what we think about psychoanalysis. Freud is instantly known, instantly recognisable. Show a photograph to anybody who can read of Freud and they'll, they'll recognise him. He's instantly recognisable. So he remains a great cultural and historical figure of the 20th century and, and he will never be forgotten. You are listening to Seamus O'Mahony. His book, The Guru, The Bagman and The Skeptic, A Story of Science, Sex and Psychoanalysis, is out now, published by Head of Zeus. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.